Deb, so good to have you. And uh, what, a powerful, what a powerful message for us. I just want to make sure that I welcome all of you this morning. Uh, you know, some of you who maybe are checking us out for the first time or you're maybe new with us. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm also one of the pastors here, and it's good to have you here today. Um, right now, I'm going to invite the ushers to take the offering. And so if you have that, you can start to get that out. But I'm going to pray as we do that. And uh, would you just join me in praying as the ushers come to take that? Let's pray. Well, Jesus, um, this morning in this place, we come to present ourselves really to you to say, what do you want to teach us? What do you want to show us? And uh, Lord, I truly believe that we have not yet exhausted your goodness or your grace, just as Deb just saying, there is so much that you have for us. I pray that you'd speak to us today. I pray that you'd move in us. I pray that we'd be challenged by you. I pray that we'd be loved by you. I pray that we would grow in you. Lord, take this offering we offer to you and multiply it for your goodness and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing in a series this, uh, this morning in the book of First and Second Corinthians, and we're in First Corinthians chapter 5 today. So if you would like to open your Bibles to First Corinthians 5, we're going to begin looking at this. We're in a series that we're calling A People in a Place. And the reason that we're calling this series A People in a Place is to really capture the essence of what the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this letter to this church in the city of Corinth, what he was actually getting at. In Corinth, we have a group of people who are living out the gospel together. They are learning how do we live out the implications of these truths of who Jesus is in our daily lives. And what we're discovering is that these letters that he's written are very practical, and they're a very practical understanding of what that actually looks like. Um, First and Second Corinthians, these are not esoteric philosophical debates about things that we might believe off in a distance, but instead they're a practical expression of what it looks like for you and I to actually be the gospel. How do we actually become the people of God living in a particular place? What does that look like to, to be people transformed by the message of Jesus living in a specific location? How do we actually do that? Which, uh, as we've noted, this has, this has very big implications for us. And so whether you're here with us in the room or whether, and I want to welcome you those online, if you're watching from Russia, if you're watching from China or, or Spain, I've talked to folks that are watching in Spain, if you're watching from India, no matter where you are, the same question face all of us out of these texts that Paul's presenting to us. The same two questions are being asked. Number one is this, how are you personally embodying the kingdom of God? How do you personally embody the kingdom of God? How is it impacting your life? And then number two, how are you publicly embodying the kingdom of God? So, so to think about it this way, how are you being shaped? How are you being molded? How are you being transformed by the reality of who Jesus is? And then how does that reality through you influence the culture around you? How do you then shape the world in which you live? And so these are the questions that we're wrestling with. And I think it's good for us to think about this. How, how much should Jesus change you? Like, that's a question we should think about. How much should he, how much could he, how much can Jesus actually change you, change your life, change your thinking? That's what we're talking about here. And then how do we change the places that we find ourselves in? Do we do it through coercion? Do we do it through strength? Do we do it through might or influence? Or is there another way that we embody the kingdom in a public way? How do we actually influence the public domain that we find ourselves in? Interestingly enough, the, the obstacles that, that we face in this are very similar to the obstacles that were faced by these early Christians living in the city of Corinth. And Paul is helping them navigate this, and I think he helps us navigate this ourselves when we look at this. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is just a tad interesting. In fact, 
If you have ever heard anybody ever say that the Bible is boring, if you've ever said the Bible is boring, you have never read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because it is salacious and scandalous and there's emotion and there's passion. There's all sorts of things that are embedded in this. So before I talk about it anymore, I'm just going to read it and then we're going to talk our way through what Paul is talking about in this text. So we're going to start reading in verse 1. It says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And as if, pre- as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that in his spirit he might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. Nice little light reading for a Sunday morning, right? (laughs) Something easy to get our day off started. I love love having just easy passages to walk through. They're real loving and applicable and gentle, right? But, But what do we have here? What is the Apostle Paul addressing? And how in the world does this apply to us? Those are the questions we need to resolve. And first, I want to just get the facts straight so we understand what's going on. And then we'll kind of go from there. Paul is traveling around, right? He's in Ephesus at this point, and he's gotten word that there's a participating member of this community of faith who is in some sort of ongoing illicit relationship with a person who is likely his stepmother. In fact, I was actually surprised when I dove into the different scholars and commentaries and I was just sort of looking into this. I was surprised by how much time and energy has been spent trying to figure out, based on the original language, what exactly was going on here. And the theories, by the way, abound. There are all sorts of theories on what's being described. Was the father deceased? Was the father alive? Was the father divorced? Is this indeed a stepmother? Or could the reason for so much shame be that this was his biological mother? And the list goes on. All of these different scholars hypothesize hypothesizing about what this might be, and most of it's pointless because it's not Paul's point. Paul actually uses a a generalized word, the Greek word porneia, to describe what's going on here. There's porneia is what he describes, and porneia is this term, we get the term pornography from it, but in that culture, it just was this general term that described any sort of sexual immorality, just illicit sexual behavior. And so the only real point that Paul is making in this text is that what this person is up to, what they're doing, this thing that they're involved in, and I quote, this is what he says, is not tolerated even among the pagans. Now, this is saying something. Um, See, 
there were some morals around sexuality in the Corinthian culture. In fact, there were two general rules that the culture followed. And one was that, that wives must be faithful to their husbands. And secondly, for men, adultery was frowned upon with the wives of other men and with underage freeborn females. After that, there pretty much are no rules. In fact, the city of Corinth was the home of the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. And in that temple, at any given time, there were around a thousand temple prostitutes who were operating in some sort of worship that included sexual illicit behavior. And it was totally accepted that married men in that culture would go and engage in sexual acts with these temple prostitutes. Not only that, they were free to do whatever they wanted with their slaves, with the people that were employed by them in their homes. All of that was fair games. Wives have to be faithful, but the men can pretty much do whatever they want. That was Corinthian culture. And so as a result, the city of Corinth had this incredible reputation for immorality. In fact, the Greeks, they coined a term that when you were engaged in sexually immoral activity, it was called to Corinthianize somebody. That's how perverted the culture is, right? In fact, the phrase, a Corinthian girl, was a derogatory phrase that was used during that time to lean into that understanding of the city. So when Paul says to this church, there's stuff going on in your midst that's not even done, not even going on among the pagans, he's revealing a very significant issue, right? But is the intention of Paul to point out one particular infraction and create a new set of guidelines for Christians? Okay, here's something else. I guess I didn't know I needed to address this, but let me make some more rules for the things you're allowed to do and not allowed to do as Christians. Like, okay, everybody, here's the deal. Or is there something else that's happening here? Let me go back to what I was saying at the beginning. Remember, there are two questions or two issues the Apostle Paul is addressing over and over again. It's about the personal embodiment of the kingdom of God. Are you living this out personally? And the public embodiment of the kingdom of God. Are you living this out in a way that influences the culture around you? Now, the first half of Corinthians chapter 5, this situation that he's addressing has everything to do with the personal embodiment of the kingdom. The reason for Paul's outrage is not because of the behavior of this one individual. It seems to be targeted on him, but it's the relative lack of transformation that has taken place in the lives of the Corinthian church, evidenced not simply in his behavior, but in the tolerance of his behavior that has him so frustrated. He's addressing this deeper underlying thing, like how in the world could this be going on in your midst and you guys not see it? Well, that must mean something about who you are and what you believe. So I just want to explain something, and I'm going to segue just for a moment. Um, I had a bit of a reality check this last week. A while back, about a year and a half or so, maybe two years ago, my wife, Sherry, um, decided that she wanted to start taking golf lessons. She wanted to start playing golf. And, um, and I encouraged this. I thought this was a good idea. I thought, I, I've been golfing nearly all my life. I grew up in Arizona. When you're born in Arizona, they hand you a golf club your first week in the hospital. That's just how life goes there. And, uh, and I thought, this will be great. You know, we're going to have a hobby to do together. This is going to be great. You know, we're closing in on empty nesting, and we're going to spend more time. This is going to be a great thing for us. And so um, she's been taking lessons. She's been playing with friends. And finally this summer, we kind of got the nerve up. Okay, we're going to play with each other for the first time. And so um, we've just started playing golf with each other, and this has been a learning experience for both of us. She's learning things about the game of golf. I'm learning how to keep my mouth shut. Um, <laughs> which is not an easy task, as you can imagine, for me, right? So, 
So she's been getting better and better. The whole summer, she's getting better. In fact, her swing's starting to look really good. One day, I just took a video of her swinging, sent it to a golf coach that I know, and he said to me, you better watch out. And I laughed, and I was like, yeah, whatever. Because I have this underlying belief. I have this underlying belief because of my long-standing history with the game of golf, this will probably never become competitive between the two of us, right? Like, it's cute that we go play golf together, but this is never going to be competitive. Not really until this week. <laughs> Monday afternoon, she says, you want to play a quick nine holes of golf? I said, sure. It's fun when we play golf together. I'm learning all sorts of things about myself and my character. Let's go do this, right? We start playing, and after two holes, after three holes, she's up by two strokes. But I'm not worried, because I have this underlying presupposition that says, because of my longstanding history with the game, and the way that I respect the game, and the way the game respects me, this will never get competitive, right? It's never going to get competitive, and so I have this presupposition, and so as I see the scorecard and realize she's up by two after three, because of my presupposition, I tell myself, this is not going to be a problem. I will scratch my way back to the top of the leaderboard, and sure enough, four holes later and a few errant shots on her part, I was back on top of this invisible in-my-mind leaderboard with a comfortable two-shot lead. Perfectly good, right? Everything's feeling wonderful. That brings us to number eight. We're playing nine holes. An easy par three, just a little uphill, 145 yards. Nice, easy shot. I've made it a million times. I duff the ball, and I hit it to the women's tee box. So now I have to do the walk of shame to the women's tee box, and she tees off, and then I'm hitting my ball when the group behind us pulls up, and they notice that I'm teeing off from the women's tee. So now... It appears this way, but I'm just humiliated. Now I'm a shot down. My hands are getting a little bit more sweaty, and I'm realizing this presupposition that I have better come through in this moment. We step up on the ninth tee box, our last tee box of the day. It's a long hole. That's to my advantage. The longer the hole, the better off I am. And so I'm thinking, this is going to be nice and easy. I hit my ball about 35 feet onto the cart path down to the left. My wife steps up and drives the longest drive of her life down the center of the fairway, just rockets this thing like a PGA professional. And I realize at this point, my presuppositions about the game of golf, its respect for me and my respect for it are about to be broken in this moment. I go down to my ball. It's on the cart path, I take relief, I drop it in the grass, and I realize this shot is one of the most important shots of my life. Like this, <laughs> this, I might as well be playing for the PGA Championship in this moment, right? Needless to say, I did not hit the perfect golf shot. As the pressure mounted, the more I caved, and we found ourselves standing on the green, putting for a tie, which I told myself, no, this will be good. This will be good that I let her tie today. Because then she'll be more inclined to keep playing with me, and we can spend more time doing this together. I had about a three-foot putt. She had about a six-inch putt. The moment that my club struck the ball, my world began to crumble around me, and I realized it's not going in. She steps up to her ball. She taps it in very lightly with a wry little smile, reaches in, grabs her ball, and goes, nice round, and walks off the green. Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. I had this presupposition of the world and how it works, and that presupposition was not only wrong, it was shattered, right, on Monday afternoon. And this is important for us to understand, and I tell this story because we all have presuppositions. 
All of us carry presuppositions. All of us have these ideas about basic assumptions of the way that the world should or, or can be working. Some people might call this a worldview. You might call it a presupposition. But it's basically this, this sense that we believe certain things about the world, and then our beliefs about those certain things will shape how we interpret events in the world. It'll shape our values in the world. It'll shape the decisions that we make in the world. They will shape our expectations as we live out in this world. But one of the greatest challenges of our faith is to allow the truth of Jesus to reshape our presuppositions rather than allow our presuppositions to reshape Jesus. You with me on this? This is really important. See, because we have all of these, we invite Jesus into our own headspace, but because these presuppositions are so strong, the challenge is we will often reshape Jesus into our image rather than letting him shape us into his image. Which takes us to these Corinthian churches. We have no doubt they believe in Jesus. This is really important. You know, Paul's upset. He's talking about these things they're doing, but guys, these are Orthodox Christians. They believe in the gospel. There's no question of their faith in him but in a manner that's very similar to what can happen to us, they have failed to allow the implications of the larger gospel influence their presuppositions evidenced in their permissive sexuality. See, there are three categories of life where our mistaken presuppositions tend to flare up the most. This is where we tend to see it the most in our lives. And by the way, golf is not one of them. Um, these are in no particular order, but they typically are either, it's either around money, it's around sex, or it's around power. How we view, how we handle, how we approach money, how we do this with, with sex, how we do this with power, this will tell us more about the presuppositions we're living with than just about anything else in our lives. And, and what they most often reveal is that we haven't allowed the reality of the gospel to really change us. We haven't let the truth of the gospel message transform us. And so these things sort of pop up in our life. We have attitudes around money, sex, and power. And, and how we're thinking about money, how we're thinking about sex, how we're thinking about power will be a revelation of our presuppositions and the depth to which Jesus has permeated our lives. So Paul hears about this situation happening in Corinth, and he's not writing to address this individual violation as much as he's saying, I'm indicting you for not embodying the kingdom of God personally. Like, you clearly don't understand that Jesus is going to influence how you think about money, sex, and power. You're not letting him shape that. The kingdom of God is not something, simply something that we believe in. It's something that we embody. And it doesn't just simply reshape what we do. It reshapes how we think. But here's the challenge for us, and this is where this does get fairly unique for us. Um, yes, the Corinthian church had presuppositions and philosophies that they allowed to shape their understanding of Jesus. But the challenge for us today, especially in the West, is that there are two dominant coexisting presumptions that people are working with that actually undermine our ability to address our own worldviews. One is called expressive individualism. The other one is called moral individualism. And, uh, and these have so deeply pervaded our thinking that even as I describe them to you right now, some of you are going to go, wait a second, that's just how things are. I thought that's how we're supposed to live. Some of you, you're just going to feel the friction in what I'm about to say. But we need to hear this because this is an important part of understanding sort of the, the, the petri dish of life that we're living in these days. 
Um, expressive individualism boils down to the idea, and this is a new idea, and you need to hear this because it's so common. We, we just tend to think this has always been the human way, but it's not. It's the idea that I have to decide what is right or wrong, that I have to discover my own truth, and then I have the responsibility to lean into the truth that I have discovered. And so happiness is found when I am unrestricted in living out my truth. So the purpose of life becomes to find one's deepest self and then express that to the world and forge this identity in ways that can go completely against whatever family or friends or political affiliations or previous generations or religious institutions, what any of them have said, it doesn't matter because I found this thing within myself and now I'm forging this new identity. Which, by the way, spoiler alert, and I hate to do this to some of you, that's the underlying message of just about every one of your favorite Disney movies, right? There's something inside of you. You need to discover it. You need the freedom to find it, and then you'll find a lifetime of happiness. That's expressive individualism. There's a book written in the 80s called Habits of the Heart. It was a prediction of where we were moving because of the individualistic nature of our culture, and it was surprisingly accurate then. You might want to check it out. Now, when you couple that with the other thing I mentioned, moral individualism, you get a really hearty one-two punch as it relates to spiritual formation and our embodiment of the kingdom. Moral individualism says this, I can't tell you what to determine is right or wrong. So you do your thing, but I have no capacity to tell you whether or not your conclusion is moral or immoral. In fact, there's a book, uh, Christian Smith wrote a book called Lost in Translation, and he was interviewing young adults in this current time period, and one of them captures and embodies this so perfectly. He said this, he said, I mean, for me, I guess what makes something right is how I feel about it, but different people feel different ways, so I couldn't speak on behalf of anyone else as to what's right and what's wrong. So if you put all this together and you realize this is the culture we're living in, if it's up to me to develop my presuppositions and even me to determine what's right or wrong, then you can't tell me whether or not I'm wrong and I can't tell you whether you're wrong. And what happens when you insert Jesus into that kind of thinking is that Jesus himself is not allowed to adjust your presupposition. He's only there to help you fulfill the ones that you already have. So if you have ideas about money, or if you have ideas about power, or you have ideas about sex, then you're just saying to Jesus, well, you're supposed to help me fulfill all of these things, because you don't tell me what's right or wrong. I figure out what's right or wrong. Which this begs a question I've been asking recently, and again, a little bit of a segue, um, but I've been asking myself this question, do maps exist anymore? I, um, I've been spending a lot of time, like, out in the woods recently this summer. Like, when I have a day off, I just kind of head out for hikes and different things. And I've made this bad habit of I look up hikes on my phone, and then I drive out of cell service. And it turns out that when you don't have cell service, Siri goes silent, right? She stops talking to you. She stops knowing where you are. And you can't go from wherever you are to another place. And so I found myself recently going to gas stations and looking for maps that weren't printed in 1982. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like... And so I just realized how dependent we've become on this voice in our ears that tells us, in 500 feet, turn left. In a mile, stay in the right lane. And we're all listening to this voice, but do any of us use actual maps anymore? But then I think about our culture, and it turns out, for most of us, we're just listening to the voice. 
turn left, go straight, stay in this lane. But what if the voice of our culture is wrong? Are there any maps anymore? In a society where expressive and moral individualism have become the norm, the voice we are hearing regarding morality has been reduced to whatever the majority of individuals are feeling at any given time. And so society, culture, becomes adrift in this sea of sort of dominant public opinion not what actually might be true or right. For example, let me tell you this. In, back in the 1800s, if I stole your horse, you could shoot me. Totally normal. It was not even a question that if you caught me stealing your horse, you could take my life. It was a criminal offense to that level. Imagine shooting somebody today for stealing a horse. How many of you would have a moral objection to that? Oh, wow. <laughs> Check, please. <laughs> this got really nervous with you guys. <laughs> Most groups of people have a moral problem with people shooting someone over a physical possession, but not this one. I think I'm done for today. <sighs> the truth is, most of us, if we shot somebody for stealing a horse, we would feel horrible about it, right? So what has happened? Why is that suddenly more immoral than it was 200 years ago? Is it because we're enlightened or is it because enough people feel a certain way and we've just adjusted to the voice? So what Paul is making painstakingly clear to the Corinthian church is that there is indeed a map. And we're invited into the place where we will allow the presuppositions of Jesus to override or rewrite the presuppositions of our culture that we have ingrained in our hearts, especially as it relates to subjects like money and sex and power. And that's what it means to embody the kingdom of God personally, that personally the implications of the gospel are being lived out in my presuppositions. I'm now seeing things differently and doing things differently as a result of this. But now I want to address something else that some of you might be feeling, and it has to do with the second question, the question of embodying the kingdom of, of God publicly. Um, we start talking about morality. We start talking about presuppositions, expressive individualism. There's this thing that some of you um, who like to shoot people that steal horses might be feeling right now, and it's this disdain for culture, right? Like, why does culture do this to us? Or maybe you've been hurt. And maybe the reality is you've followed culture's map, per se, and you have wounds in your life that you could say, oh, I've, I've been scarred, I've been wounded. And so there's a part of you that goes, I'm bitter towards the culture. I'm bitter towards the things that are happening out there. So let's talk about this. The, in the second half of this passage, Paul addresses something that, that may feel like what I just described. You feel disdain for the culture and society. And then Paul says something that I think confronts those feelings. Verse 9 again, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But then look at verse 10. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. But then verse 12, he says it again. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? What's he getting at here? Well, he, he reveals 
that embodying the kingdom publicly boils down to two things, and it's two things that are almost the exact opposite of how the church through the centuries has behaved. He shows us inward accountability and outward graciousness. And you know, through history, we've almost flipped that upside down. We've had inward graciousness and outward accountability. He confronts this tendency that we have to condemn the culture. We shake our fists and we shake our heads and we cast judgment. We refuse to associate. I can't believe how they believe and I would never spend time with those people because they would corrupt me if I was with them. And Paul says, that's not what I'm telling you. And if that was what I'm telling you, you would have to remove yourself from the planet because it's impossible, right? And then a few sentences later, he said, for what have, I do, what have I to do with judging outsiders? By the way, everything that Paul is saying is mirrored perfectly in the attitudes and actions of Jesus himself. Who did Jesus save his sharpest words for? It was the religious, right? And who did Jesus lavish with grace? It was the outsider. Over and over again, Jesus was so gracious. He was so associated with the idolater, with the reveler, with the drunkard, with the swindler, that he was even considered one himself. Scandalous by church standards. And the opposite of how the church has historically operated. We tend to extend grace to those of us inside the church. It's like we're gracious because we know each other, we have relationship, and so we're really gracious around these things, but then we have this tendency to hold our fists up to the culture around us and get angry to the outsider. That's how every earthly organization tends to work. Accepting of the people that believe like us, rejecting of the people that don't, and Jesus says, no, there's something totally different. I want you to hold each other accountable. I want you to embody the kingdom personally. I want you to hold you and your friends and your brothers to living out the, the, the presuppositions of Jesus, but towards those on the outside who don't believe as you believe. Jesus said, I want you to be salt. I want you to be light. I had a friend a few years ago, and I'll, I'll close with this. I had a friend a few years ago who in nearly every category of our life, she believed and lived the opposite of me. I'm not kidding. I mean, you put two columns, put every category, we would have checked every box different. But I was committed to treating her the way that Jesus would. And we were living in New York City at the time, and we lived in an apartment building that had a shared garden in the back, and we would oftentimes on Fridays just hang out and spend time talking with our neighbors and I remember one night we were just sitting and I was just sharing with her about my life and what I believe and a few things. And, and it, this had been an ongoing conversation that had been taking place. But then at one point, I'll never forget that night, she stopped me and she said, Brad, I need to tell you something. She said, I don't know that I've ever been treated so well or have been so respected by somebody who called themselves a Christian in all my life. And it grieved me. I apologized on behalf of Christians everywhere to her. And I said, just so you know, this is the way that Jesus told us to live. Can I just tell you this? A few months later, I got a, I got a phone call from her. And she said, hey, can you stop by our apartment? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so when I went, knocked on the door of their apartment, opened up, her and her partner were sitting on a couch and they'd opened up the book of John. They had bought a Bible 
and they'd open up the book of John and they'd started studying the, the New Testament and they said, man, we are running into some real problems. Could you help us navigate some of these questions that we're coming up with? And I said, absolutely I will, right? That's why these words of the Apostle Paul stand out so powerfully. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? We're going to close by taking communion together today. And so if, if you got that when you came in, um, I'm going to encourage you to take that out um, and maybe just begin opening it and get it ready. But as you do that, um, later in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gives instructions for how we take communion. And one of the things that he mentions is this, this um, decision we make to examine ourselves, to examine our hearts. And um, you might liken that to holding up a mirror and just looking and seeing something that might be out of place or maybe not in the right spot. And, you know, my prayer for our message this morning leading into communion is that 1 Corinthians 5 might be a mirror that we could hold up. And if there's, if there are presuppositions that we're holding that just don't really reflect the values of Jesus, if, if we're bumping up against that stuff in our lives, it's time to just reflect on that. It's time to sit back and examine it. Are there, are there areas or ways where I'm not letting Jesus change my presuppositions? And in the same way, do I have attitudes? And we got to check ourselves on this. Do I have attitudes towards the outside world that Jesus would have never had towards people? And do I need to do I need to adjust those things? When we take communion, what we do together in this moment is we are, it's like raising our hand and saying, I'm a part of the way of Jesus. I'm a follower of the way, which means that we don't simply believe in what Jesus did. We, we redo what Jesus did. We live out his way around us. And so by taking communion together, we're choosing to say, I'm a follower of the way of Jesus. But in doing that, we examine ourselves, Right? So I just wanted to ask right now, would you just close your eyes and, and bow your heads and we're going to just take a moment to examine. What are your presuppositions around things like money or sex or power? What's your attitude like towards people who don't believe like us? Would you allow Jesus just to heal, adjust, change, shift your heart right now? The scriptures tell us that Jesus gathered his disciples uh, the night before he was, or the night he was betrayed, and he. Um, they had a meal together. They had the Passover meal. But it says that during that meal, Jesus took out the bread and he broke it in front of them. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He said, eat this and remember, remember me. And I think today's a good day for us to remember Jesus. So would you join me and let's eat together.
After they'd eaten, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. It's a new deal between God and humanity through me. And he said, I want you to drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace. All of us, Lord, we're on the outside looking in. All of us had a story that walked the opposite direction of you and you welcomed us in. And so, Lord, I just thank you for that grace. I thank you for your salvation. I thank you for the way you rescue us, not just in the life to come, but in this life. And I pray that we would experience that rescue in the here and now. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? I want to offer the benediction to you now. And if you're comfortable, maybe holding out your hands to receive this, I offer this to you today. May you be men and women who embody the kingdom of God personally. May you give Jesus permission to rewrite your presuppositions. And may you live lovingly and graciously to people the same way that Jesus would. In his name, amen. Amen, amen. We love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today, just celebrating Jesus together. Have an amazing rest of your week, and we'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.